Chapter 10, Part 2, Forgiveness for Self. For those longing for true forgiveness, however, the 12-step program contains a glaring omission. Missing altogether is the direct mention of forgiveness from God, significant others, or self. To be sure, change behavior equals change lives, not only for the addict or the abuser, but for the entire family. For that, we give thanks. The future shines brightly whenever a prisoner of the present escapes the dungeon of addiction. But when, what about the haunting past? What about the need to be forgiven and to forgive ourselves for all the wrong we've done, all the people we've hurt, and all the consequences that remain? Recognizing our helplessness, turning our lives over to God, admitting our wrongdoing, making restitution, and prayer are all powerful life-changing measures. These moves may even lead to self-forgiveness. Certainly when we consider that all sin is at the heart separation from God, others, nature, and self. The 12-step program does, does indeed indirectly affect a fragile forgiveness for God, others, and self as a barrier to oneness collapse. It is possible, however, to find a way to somehow upgrade forgiveness from indirect to direct, from fragile to firm. What do we do when the wash is done, but a stubborn stain remains? What might we do if a sin that seems impossible to wash from our memory? What do we do when general forgiveness clothes us, but the lack of self-forgiveness is one torturous area that makes us feel naked and ashamed? Justification. Steve loved his wife, son, and daughter. Theirs was a home where prayer and church attendance was routine. So was Steve's drinking. Steve had been an honorable mention All-American athlete in college. His teammates seemed to be able to go out for beers without alcohol taking control of their lives. Not Steve. He drank long. He drank often. After marrying his wife, Susan, his drinking problem worsened. By the time his children came along, Steve was drinking early and late. As the babies grew into childhood, Steve would often disappear for days at a time. Steve and Susan fought. Tears followed. The family became dysfunctional as the secret was kept from the grandparents and others. Steve related to me a time when he sat reading the sports page in his easy chair at home as little Stephanie jumped into his lap, hugging his neck and begging, Daddy, please don't go out drinking tonight. Please, Daddy, I love you. Please don't go, Daddy, promise. Steve softly wept as he shared this painful memory. Doc, I knew as she hugged my neck and begged me that I would go out anyway. Susan and Steve eventually divorced. I've made a mess of my life, he sobbed. But the one thing I can't forgive myself for is what I've done to Stephanie, how I hurt her. How can Steve ever forgive himself? First, Steve must receive God's forgiveness. Then, but not before, he will be able to forgive himself. Without God's forgiveness, we may only attain a false peace, if at any at all. Ours is a longing to remove the curse of estrangement from God, nature, family, others, and our true selves due to our heinous sins. Restoring oneness, harmony, and peace to our lives will constitute a long-awaited blessing that sometimes elusive blessings forgive. Sometimes that elusive blessing is forgiveness.
in guilt and grace, there are other two solutions for the problem of guilt. One false, the other true. In the false category, both moral and effort atoning sacrifices are ritual. The only true solution to the problem of guilt is atonement of our sins by God himself. According to Christian theologians, the world was founded upon grace. Who among us would argue that we deserve life or forgiveness? What have we done to deserve life? Forgiveness of wrong by its very nature cannot be deserved. To be sure, justice is a moral absolute. Yet only grace works in forgiveness. Were we to plead for justice, all our injustices would merit punishment. Forgiveness then would always spring from grace. By grace, God forgives us. And by grace, God empowers us to forgive others and ourselves. Moral effort is certainly commendable. Moral effort, however, can neither yield perfection nor atone for imperfection. We all fail. Our souls are famished. Let us cease to gnaw at the stale crust of moral perfection when grace sets a feast before us. Should our hope for holistic forgiveness rest instead with ritual? The ancient Hebrews celebrated a day of atonement in which sins were covered. In this ceremony, two goats were chosen to bear the sin of Israel. One goat was slain as a sin offering to the Lord. The second was became the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in, in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities. The first ghost was for the goat was for the Lord. The second one was for everyone else. The Hebrew term Amzel is generally in, interpreted as the scapegoat in various translations. However, the term may refer to the desert demon. The identity as a leader of a fallen angels who is sentenced to life beneath the rocks in the desert as they awaited judgment. What is significant about these atoning sacrifices is that the removal of sin from humans, the role of the two goats reminds us that sin is deadly and that evil must go everywhere, or even must go somewhere. The first animal died in place of the sinful people. The second one returned evil to the demons or the devil. Soon, however, the false security of Israel's ritual was shattered by the psalmist and prophets. Soon, however, the false security of Israel ritual was shattered by the psalmists and prophets who insisted that God desired a right relationships, not religious rites. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Bring your worthless offers, offerings no longer. Even though you offer up me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing stream. 
For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings or yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require you but do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I did not speak to you, fathers, or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I command them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. We are all in this forgiveness predicament together. We all sin, and every sin must be paid for. All sinners need to be justified. For all have sinned and all fall glory, fall short in the glory of God. Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. What if we should think of justified as just as if I'd never sinned? Encouraged Dallas Willard in the divine conspiracy. The Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God pardons like a mother, said Henry Ward Beecher, 19th century American clergyman and abolitionist. Who kisses the offense into everlasting forgetfulness? When God forgives our sins, that is when we are justified. God does not remember our sins. It is just as if I never sinned. The only true solution to problems of guilt is atonement through God himself. At one meant with God, others and self comes not through priest and standing, but through ourselves and our time with God. Forgiveness is not an idea. Forgiveness is a person. Jesus forgives. We have a difficult time accepting forgiveness of our sins and forgiving ourselves as well, don't we? Why? Because we believe our sins must be paid for. When Jesus died on the cross for forgiveness of our sins, God paid a divine idea. Forgiveness, however, is not an idea. Forgiveness is a person. Jesus forgives. Grace. We do not come to grace. Grace comes to us, observed M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled. Isn't this what John meant when he proclaimed? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and God was the and the word was God and the word became flesh dwelling among us full of grace and truth for his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace for the law has given through Moses grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ What is grace Grace is a river Wherever its course winds, winds, souls blossom like flowers. The river flows here, there, by me, by you, by all of us. We swim in it, float down it, drink its cool waters. From where does this river flow? From the altar of God, Ezekiel said. From the cross, Jesus said, I am the living water. Said the Christ, thirsty, drink. The stream exists for you. For me, for us, come to the waters and drink freely, invited Isaiah. Drink and never thirst, offers Christ. 
drink. The church has been showering living waters upon, upon parched souls for 21 centuries. Grace means there is nothing I can ever do to make God love me more. Nothing I could ever do to make God love me less. Grace is rooted in God's character, not mine. I am not always good, but God always loves me. Grace always fills out a place, kind of like a mustache on a grandmother. Sin like sand on a retina. It's like chewing tinfoil. Sin to the memory as wrinkles are to cardboard. Impossible to remove. Grace on us is like water on wax. It is a hard time soaking in. Nevertheless, grace offers unconditional love and forgiveness. God is grace. With 2,000 years of sweet grace served, guilt-ridden sinners should be drawn to the church like kittens to warm milk. But is this all so? It's what's so amazing about grace. Philip Yancey shares the following story he heard from a friend who works with, a desti with the destitute in Chicago. A prostitute came to me in wretched, wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing the story. For one thing, it made me look legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she'd ever thought of going to church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Perhaps author William Miller was right when he said, too much morality is a bad as too little morality. If Miller's statement is true, the church and the prostitute fail under the same judgment, fall under the same judgment. Like the elder and the younger brother in the parade, parable of the prodigal son, one acknowledges his sin, the other is as blind as a bat. Hadn't the prostitute already judged herself? How could she ever forgive herself? What she needed was grace. And then, of course, help. Years ago, when my daughter, Allison Elise, was a young child, I was going overboard in correcting her for something I felt she had done wrong. She listened contritely and respectively. As I went on and on, she at last said, Daddy, God and I are twins. Allison Elise had accepted her judgment granted herself grace, and had become my teacher. There is time for judgment and a time for grace. One cold winter's day when our daughter Shannon was four, maybe five, she found me trying to get a fire going in the fireplace and hit me from behind with a question. Daddy, you're a doctor, right? Continuing to stroke the fire, I answered, why do you ask, honey? Because Allison Payne calls you doctor. Well, I guess I am, I said. You're a doctor, Daddy, Shannon puzzled, but nobody ever comes to you. I laughed. Yeah, I guess you're right, honey. Well, that's all right, Daddy, she consoled me, because you don't even have a kit. Shannon was right, of course. Some doctor I am. I don't even have a kit. I wish I did. If I did, I'd have a kit. I'd know I'd carry in it. Grace. I'd throw in love, acceptance, forgiveness, and peace. 
Why? Because that's what all we need to do in this world and, and to be well within. Shannon was right. I don't even have a kit, but I know someone who does. I have it on good authority that this someone still makes house calls anytime, anywhere. Grace finds us in Christ. Then we grace ourselves. Self-forgiveness. Perhaps the first thing we need to forgive ourselves for is not being God's. Only God is sinless. Only God is perfect. We must give up the myth of perfection for the truth of our fallibility. To accept my imperfection is to position myself as a candidate for grace. Grace comes to us from the cross of Christ, where God did for us what he cannot, we cannot do for ourselves. God helped us with our sin problem. In short, God saved us. What did God save us from is ourselves. No more self-destruction. No more self-despising. By forgiving us, God freed us to forgive ourselves. To forgive ourselves is to accept ourselves. Self-acceptance always begins outside of the self. So does forgiveness. Being made whole by God's forgiveness and acceptance enables us to forgive and accept ourselves. In sum, God's forgiveness leads to self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness leads to self-acceptance. And self-acceptance leads to peace. For most of us trying to forgive ourselves, it's like learning to walk. It takes a while. Like God, we want to remove our sins as far as the east is from west. Yet all previous attempts have blown up on the launching pad. In theory, self-forgiveness happens in a miracle moment. In practice, it may take a long time. The ancient sage Ephesus left behind these words of encouragement. No great thing is created suddenly, any more than a bunch of grapes or figs. If you tell me you desire a fig, I answer that you must wait a time. It must first bloom, then bear fruit, then ripen. So it is with forgiveness. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe, goes an old saying. Forgiveness requires a sure foundation. It does not float in the air like butterflies to be grabbed. Among all my patients in the second half of life, that is to say over 35, psychiatrist Carl Jung revealed, none of them has really truly healed who did not regain his religious outlook. With the foundations of God's forgiveness in Christ before us, we can address the mechanics of forgiving ourselves. In order to forgive ourselves, several prerequisites must be in place. We must not, number one, ignore our conscience, stop what we know is wrong. We must not, number two, justify our wrong by saying it is because, or we should have, or I don't excuse it away. Number three, we must not blame others for our behavior. You did this, so I did that. Rather, we must have seen in earlier chapters, we must, number one, accept responsibilities for our actions. Number two, recognize our guilt. Number three, address both the wrong and the attitude leading to the wrong. Number four, repent for our, of our wrongdoing. Number five, make restitution when possible. Number six, show respect for the victim. And number seven, accept God's forgiveness. We accept God's forgiveness through prayer. 
Without confessing to God in repentance, forgiveness cannot be accepted. Confession to a priest or pastor or therapist or confidant may also help us on our journey towards wholeness. As witnesses and pages of New Testament, the healing touch of Jesus reminds us that the cure of the soul is best done in community. The confessional path to forgiveness cannot be bypassed. By humility without confession is impossible. Admitting a vice is one thing. Agreeing with God about the vice, even grieving over it, is another matter altogether. True confession characterized by brokenness and humility leads to repentance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Recognition of personal spirituality or spiritual poverty requires humility. Jesus added, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word translated blessed means happy. The term translated mourn refers to funeral lament. Paradoxically, Jesus is saying that we can be happy when we are sad. When we read Matthew 5, 3, Matthew 5, 4 together, the meaning unfolds. When we finally realize that we are spiritually impoverished, impoverished and mourn about it, relief is ours at last. St. Bernard, a 12th century French monk and mystic called humility, scorn for our own excellence. For Bernard, humility was a virtue by which man knowing himself exactly as he is, is vile in his own eyes. True humility, it seems, always leads to consciousness of spiritual poverty, which in turn leads to confession and repentance. Catholicist, Trying on self-forgiveness is like is a lot like trying on a new pair of shoes. The fit might be a little tight at first, but after a while, everything begins to feel better. Ten ingredients in the recipe for forgiveness were identified in chapter six. I chose to refer to those concepts and ingredients rather than steps, since even though a list is given, no particular order is suggested. Many of the same principles involved in forgiving others apply to self-forgiveness as well. So how do we forgive ourselves? Now remember, not in the specific order. Number one, slowly. Two, humanly. Three, divinely. Four, as we limit the load. Five, by taking the appropriate action to create realities. Six, by praying, for which we are absolutely no substitute. Seven, by living Christianly, which begins the process of transforming ourselves, image. And eight, through prayer, prayer, and more prayer. With prayer, the impossible becomes possible. Judas betrayed Jesus, so did Peter. Both suffered a massive attack of guilt, which threw each man into spiritual cardiac arrest. Self-hatred struck like a stroke. Each discipline required immediate intensive care each disciple, sorry. Only one thing could restore these men to spiritual health, forgiveness. No other medicine would do. Each required forgiveness from Christ and self. One man became well, the other did not. One experienced forgiveness, the other did not. One thrived, the other committed suicide. When, like Judas and Peter, 
We betray uh, loved ones. The thread of our lives pulls and soon unravels. We stand naked in our shame. Will we kill the relationship like Judas? Or will we thrive and thrive even deeper than we've ever thrived before when we accept our, our fate and forgiveness of self and Christ and be like Peter? where our relationship is once again whole and thriving. Unless we exchange our fig leaves for self-contempt for skins of grace, life is unbearable. Ultimately, the difference between accepting and not accepting God's forgiveness and, for, and forgiveness for self is the difference between life and death. The examples of Peter and Judas show us all too clearly. We must cheer for Simon Peter. We weep for Judas. If only Judas had waited, surely the resurrected Christ would have come to him as he did to Peter. If Judas had only accepted Christ's forgiveness, he wouldn't have committed suicide. If he had found it possible to pray, Lord, please forgive me and help me to forgive myself, his fate might have been different. Self-love. The son of a rabbi went to worship on the Sabbath in the nearby village. Upon his return, his family asked, well, did they do anything different from what we do here? Yes, of course, the son said. Then what was the lesson? Love thy enemy as thyself. So is the same as we say. And how is that that you learn something else? They taught me to love the enemy within myself. Hmm, novel idea, that one. Loving the internal, not the external enemy. Of course we should love all our enemies, Jesus taught. Love your enemies, he said. Jesus also taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves, while apparently assuming we would, in fact, love ourselves. Easier said than done. Many of us come close to despising ourselves than loving ourselves. Sometimes our own worst enemy is ourselves. As the cartoon figure Pogo once said, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Is it really possible to love the enemy within us? Isn't that the hardest person of all to love and forgive is ourself? St. Bernard's contemplated what we might call a ladder of spiritual maturity. He said those on the lowest rung love self for self's sake. Love for self's sake is essentially an infantile stage of self-centered existence. They're extremely self-centered. Those on the second rung of the ladder love God for self's sake. These folks realize that it's in their best interest to love Christ, so therefore they better love him. Creator and judge of all, those ascending to the third step love God for God's sake. These individuals are, are the pure of heart. They are not in a relationship with God for what they can get out of it. Instead, they simply love God for who God is. These are spiritual giants, the model for the rest of us. To, surprise, to my surprise, Bernard included a final wrong on his ladder of spiritual development. The idea there could be a form of maturation higher than loving God unconditionally is suspect for most of us. After all, isn't arriving at the third level of the ladder ascension to the highest of divine love level itself? Could any form of love possibly be higher? Bernard suggests so. 
according to Bernard, the highest form of love in the universe is love of self for God's sake. When we think long and hard about the stages of love, Bernard's conviction makes sense. Who is harder to love than ourselves? We're not talking about narcissism here, but something altogether different. Spiritual love differs radically from selfish love. To love ourselves for God's sake is to invite God into care for our souls. Our only, only those willing to dance with God will ever reach this dance floor. I could amend Bernard's letter, ladder to include our relationship with others. The second and third levels respectively would read love of God and, our, our, and others for self's sake. Love of God and others for our sake. Other than those changes, I'm persuaded by Bernard's argument. We sin not because we love ourselves too much, but because we do not love ourselves enough. If we really loved ourselves like God loves us, wouldn't all our choices serve our highest good? Isn't Jesus the model here? Will any of us reach the zenith of spirituality? Perhaps, I do not believe many of us will. Most of us will continue to struggle. I count myself in that number. Did Bernard reach the highest level of spiritual maturity? I'll let him speak for himself. He said, I do not know whether it is possible for anyone to arrive at during his life, earthly life at the fourth degree, into which man loves himself only for God's sake. Then he adds, as for myself, I do not think it is possible in this world. Never perfect. When Jesus calls us by name, he says, come to me, all who are weary 